some men could tell you of the untimely loss of health brought on by youthful sins. Disease racks their limbs with pain and life is almost a weariness. Their muscular strength is so wasted that the slightest weight seems a burden. Their eye has become prematurely dim and their natural energy abated. The sun of their health has gone down while it is yet day, and they mourn to see their flesh and body consumed. Believe me, this is a bitter cup to drink. Others could give you sad accounts of the consequences of idleness. They threw away the golden opportunity for learning. They would not get wisdom at the time when their minds were most able to receive it and their memory most ready to retain it, and now it is too late. They don't have the time to sit down and learn. They no longer have the same power, even if they had the time. Lost time can never be redeemed. This, too, is a bitter cup to drink. Others could tell you of grievous mistakes in judgment from which they suffer all their lives. They had to have it their own way. They would not take advice. They formed some connection which has been altogether ruinous to their happiness. They chose a profession for which they are entirely unsuited. And they see it all now. But their eyes are only open when the mistake cannot be retrieved. Oh, this is also a bitter cup to drink. Young men, young men, I wish I did not but know the comfort of a conscience not burdened with a long list of useful sins. These are the wounds that pierce the deepest. These are the arrows that drink up a man's spirit. This is the iron that enters into the soul. Be merciful to yourselves. Seek the Lord early, so, and so you will be spared many a bitter tear. This is the truth that Job seems to have felt. He says in Job 13, verse 26, For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. So also his friend Zophar, speaking of the wicked, says in Job chapter 20, verse 11, His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. David also seems to have felt it. He prays in to the Lord in Psalm 25, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Beza, the great Swiss reformer, felt it so strongly that he named it in his will as a special mercy that he had been called out from the world by the grace of God at the age of 16. Go and ask believers now. And I think many will tell you much the same. Oh, that I could live my young days over again. Most will probably say, Oh, that I had spent the beginning of my life in a better way. Oh, that I had not laid the foundations of evil habits so strongly in the springtime of my journey. Young men, I want to save you some sorrow if I can. Hell itself is truth known too late. Be wise in time. What youth sows, 
old age must reap. Do not give the most precious season of your life to that which will not comfort you in the latter days of your life. Sow to yourselves, rather in righteousness. Break up your hard ground. Don't sow among the thorns. Sin may be easy for you to do with your hands or run smoothly off your tongue now, but depend on this, the effects of your sin, and you will meet again in time, however little you may like it. Old wounds will often ache and give pain long after they are healed, and only a scar remains. So may you find it with your sins. The footprints of animals have been found on the surface of rocks that were once wet sand. Thousands of years after the animal that made them has perished and passed away, so also may it be with your sins. Experience, says the proverb, is a hard school to attend, but fools learn in no other. I want you all to escape the misery of learning in that school. I want you to avoid the wretchedness that youthful sins are sure to entail. This is the last reason why I exhort you. Those are the words of J.C. Ryle in his book, Thoughts for Young Men. An important book. A book that I wish that I had read and applied when I was a young man. Or truth be told, I wish someone had told me. Or even exemplified those things for me when I was a young man. Of course, there were men here and there throughout my life who said the right things, preached the right sermons, exhorted me in the right ways, taught the right Sunday school lessons. There were a few who stepped in for a while and acted as spiritual fathers to me, and to them I am grateful. And yet, like many men, I still live with a fair amount of regret over a misspent youth. The older I get, especially now that Our children are married and I'm a grandfather. I see the importance of the work of spiritual fathers. And the term spiritual father, um, it's in some ways a broader term than just simply using the word fathers. Because any, any godly Christian man can and should be a spiritual father. Likewise, any, any godly Christian woman can and should be a spiritual mother, regardless of whether or not they have their own children. Because this is about discipleship. This is about going and making disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. As such, it's also a, a narrower term. Spiritual fathers is also narrower than just saying fathers because not every father will necessarily be a spiritual father. That's an unfortunate truth. Spiritual fatherhood requires regeneration. It requires being born again by the Holy Spirit. One fundamental truth that we have to admit is that men and women are different. Everyone knows that deep down. Um, And when we try to deny that, it it only ends up making us look silly. And yet beyond this cultural moment where the world doesn't know that or says they don't know it, we also live in an age of confusion. 
confusion regarding the roles of men and women in the church and also in the family. The world has no idea, or or maybe it just simply rejects the idea of what true motherhood and, and fatherhood as designed and ordained by God is supposed to look like. The world tells mothers to get out of the home and act like men and tells fathers to be more feminine. Anything that once was seen as manly is now labeled as toxic masculinity. And just so that we're clear, we talked about this uh, over the last few months, the Bible doesn't prohibit mothers from working outside the home. In fact, encourages godly women to be industrious in all kinds of different ways. We looked at that in Proverbs 31 in particular. It's all over that chapter. And... There are traits that have been ingrained in men that are or can be toxic. Anger, abuse, other sins, so forth, should not be tolerated. Rather, should be repented of. But that doesn't negate the fact that mothers and fathers are different from one another and are absolutely vital to the health and well-being of the family. Just as spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers are likewise vital for the spiritual help and discipleship of the church. And so in today's passage, we're going to see the importance of the work of spiritual fathers specifically in the lives of disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to read, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read really from the opening of the chapter down through verse 12 so that we can remember the context here. We're going to be looking specifically at verses uh, 9 through 12. So let's start though in chapter chapter 2 verse 1. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, or Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write to the Thessalonians, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you've become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, let's stop and pray here. (laughs) Father, I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us to understand what your word is saying and so apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, the thing I want, to, I want you to keep in mind as we work through um, these verses, verses 9 to 12, is that there is, a, there is a main point, there's a thing that Paul is trying to get us to see, and there's also an underlying point. And they play off each other. Um, and so I'm going to do the same or attempt to do the same. Hopefully this will make sense as we work through this. You'll be able to see it pretty clearly, I hope. So in the previous few verses, Paul uses um, what might be called, I don't know, matronly language or, or motherly language to describe his work among the Thessalonian saints. So look again at verses 7 and 8. So chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you've become very dear to us. This is the language of, of, a, of a gentle nurturing, of, of loving and selfless caring. So the Apostle Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they, they dealt with the church in the same way that a nursing mother cares for her baby. And, and it's pretty easy to see that. Um, we can see the connection between, between Paul the Apostle lovingly sharing not only the gospel of God with them, but even his very life. We can see the connection between that and, and a new mother willingly giving up all of the things that she would normally be doing, giving up her own life to care for her newborn. And remember, Paul is, Paul is using an example of one thing to, to get us to see something else, right? Paul is, is taking for granted that this gentle, nurturing mother, that, that that's a, a, the, the normal human experience, Mothers are created by God to lovingly care for their children. And it's a helpful illustration for us because it shows us in a very simple way how he cared for the saints there in Thessalonica. That's not the only time that Paul actually writes like this, using one thing to illustrate something else, um, playing a main point and an underlying point kind of off of each other. He does something very similar in Ephesians chapter 5. Just listen to this. It's verses 25 to 33. Paul is instructing husbands. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying, Paul writes, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul is saying, look, this is how husbands should treat their wives, but I'm really talking about how Christ treats the church, but this is how husbands should treat their wives. That's what Paul is saying. He's drawing on a, on a common human relationship, marriage, and explaining how for Christians it is to be sanctified, 
And he's clearly connecting that relationship to how the church is related to Christ, who is the perfect bridegroom. So he's teaching two lessons with the same analogy. And he's doing the same thing here, although admittedly to a lesser extent. But he doesn't stop with the analogy of motherhood, which I will admit even that analogy there uh, is a little more covert than overt. So the analogy is overt, but the instruction is a little more covert. What I mean by that is this. Um, mother, his statement about motherhood is, is, is really almost a statement that nobody would dispute, right? So he doesn't have to say, hey, mothers, try being gentle with your newborns. He doesn't have to say that because they already are. It's an innate part of their creation. But with men both here and especially there in Ephesians, he needs to be a little more blunt. And so he also explains here the work of a spiritual father. And the key verse that pulls all of this together is verse 11. So 1 Thessalonians 2.11 says, For you know how, like a father with his children, dot, dot, dot. For you know how, with a, like a father with his children, so this entire paragraph, verses 9 to 12, it pictures Paul along with the others, Silvanus and Timothy or Silas and Timothy. It pictures them in the role of a spiritual father, spiritual fathers. And the first thing that he emphasizes is their labor and proclamation. Labor and proclamation. So look at verses 9 and 10. <coughs> He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that we have to bear in mind as we read through 1 Thessalonians in particular is that Paul is defending his ministry to some unnamed um, critics and opponents that are, that are essentially lying to the, to the church at Thessalonica about him and about these other co-laborers. So he's not just simply bragging here as we read through this. He's not saying just simply, remember how hard of a worker I was when I lived there? Man, we worked hard. Wasn't that great? You didn't have to give us anything because we were just so good at what we did. That's not what he's doing. He's not bragging. He's rather pointing, essentially, he's pointing at them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So when you think about this kind of work that's described in verse 9, labor and toil night and day, I know, I know that this kind of, kind of hard night and day toil is actually common among the members of this church. I know that. But it's increasingly uncommon in the world around us. Not that long ago, the usual pattern was for sons to learn, essentially to learn the trades of their fathers. Um, but now that's becoming more and more, it's becoming more and more common for a young man or woman, but we're talking about men here, for a young man to get his first job after he graduates college. Unfortunately, that has also coincided with the fact that fathers 
often shirk their responsibility to prepare their children for the Christian life. Either they leave it up to mom or a youth pastor or someone else. So Paul here is saying that he worked really hard so that this brand new church did not have to support him. But what he makes clear from the entire passage is that he similarly uh, labored to raise these, these converts to Christianity as their spiritual father. He discipled them in, in faith and godliness. So together with the, the previous passage, this paints a balanced picture of spiritual leadership. Spiritual, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> spiritual uh, parenting. Uh, it paints a balanced picture of, of discipleship. So John MacArthur said of these verses, he said, it is not enough for leaders to be compassionate, tender, and caring as spiritual mothers. They also need to live lives that in their motives and actions set the standard for all to follow. Furthermore, they need to teach the truth faithfully and call their spiritual children to obedience. The Apostle Paul here, he knew that part of spiritual fathering is setting an example <coughs> for his children. So he sets an example for his children in this letter. He does so by, by reminding the Thessalonian saints that they have seen how he lived among them. N namely, and specifically, how hard he worked. They saw that. So an underlying point here, it's not the main point, it's an underlying point, is that children need to see their, they need to see their fathers work hard. He's talking about hard work and long days in verse 9. But they also need to see him working on his godly character, verse 10. Children need to see their dad's work. They need to see him work hard. And especially on their godly character. That's what verse 10 is saying. So back to the main point. That's an underlying point. The main point at the beginning of verse 9, it says this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul and the others here, they were careful not to give the impression that the purpose of this ministry was just simply to make money. Instead, it is clear that, that Paul's mission, Paul's goal, was to bring salvation to his hearers. His goal was to preach the gospel. And so at various times and in various places, including in Thessalonica, he refused financial support from these new believers. No, that's not what this is about, he would say. I don't want your money. Just listen to what I have to say. Instead, Paul supported himself. Acts chapter, 13, uh, chapter 18, verse 3, tells us that at least when he was with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, that's what's happening in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. When he was with them, at least, he supported himself through the trade of tent making, um, which was difficult work. And if you've ever started a business, um, I'm sure you understand this kind of night and day labor and toil that he's talking about there in verse 9. Paul worked long, 
hard hours to provide for himself and to provide for the ministry. Here's an interesting side note. There's a few interesting side notes today, so see if you can stay with me. <laughs> Here's an interesting side note. 1 Thessalonians, this letter, and, and, and also Galatians, are the first couple of letters probably that Paul wrote, at least that we have in Scripture. And scholars have estimated, based on the techniques and the practices of the time, um, they've estimated, uh, they, they, took, they looked at things like the materials needed and the hiring of a, of a secretary, um, someone to write down, and also someone to hand deliver the letter. It's estimated that it costs somewhere between two and $3,000 each in today's money to write and send some of his letters depending on how far away he was and how long the letter was, somewhere in today's money between two and $3,000 each. The point that I wanted to tell you this is, is this. Letter writing was an important part of Paul's ministry, and it was expensive. Today, it's virtually free, right? We can email and text uh, and if we rely on the postal service, we could spend, I don't even have any idea how much stamps are anymore. 50 cents, $100, I don't know how much a stamp is now. But it's virtually free compared to this. We can get letters and communication to people around the world for nothing. But the costs of other things that we deem vital to ministry, the costs can add up quickly. The point here, and the point I'm making, is that ministry can be expensive, and therefore it re relies on support. Now, later, when the, when the churches that he had planted had grown and matured in their faith, they would support his ministry, um, except, it seems like, except for the church at Corinth. He says this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Listen to these words. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. But when I was with you, he's talking to the Corinthian church, and, and, uh, and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's where the Thessalonica is, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So, <coughs> sorry. so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, <clears throat> here's the point of all of this. I've said this before, I don't want to belabor this point, but the normal New Testament pattern um, and teaching is that churches support their ministers and the ministry as you do here. And I, but what I do want you to see from all of this is that Paul labored and toiled night and day in order to meet the spiritual needs of the saints of Thessalonica and the other churches. He worked hard night and day. So let me give you a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of exhortation. In every way, not just physically, physical work, but in every way, including our battle against our own sin, the Christian life requires strenuous work. In every way. Now, I don't mean entering the Christian life, Christ did that work. I don't mean getting saved. That's all of God's grace. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. 
Paul compares the Christian life to athletic training. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Christian life is work. Godliness, discipleship, requires hard work, training. Pastor Richard Phillips, who's um, a pastor in South Carolina, he, he said, to have a growing faith, we must study, serve, and participate fully in the life of the church, all of which is hard work. It's hard work. We fully acknowledge that. Sometimes, um, sometimes those who might be, we might consider our spiritual fathers or, or mothers, sometimes they make the Christian life look easy. I think the godliest saints that are older than us, they often just make it look so easy. But that's just because of their habits that they've developed over time. That's because of the experience that they've gone through. It's not easy, which is why they will often, and we must often, we must cling to the promise, as Paul says, His grace is sufficient for us. Christian, <laughs> the Christian life is not easy. And yet even so, those those who are leaders in the church, and especially fathers, spiritual fathers, we must set an example for those that we lead so that they will respect our hard work and learn to embrace this same pattern for themselves. Our kids need to see us work, but especially they need to see us work on our godliness and holiness. They need to see us reading the Bible. They need to see us learning the songs that we can sing. They need to see us praying. One of the reasons why the elders are often the first ones to show up on a Sunday morning here and the last ones to leave in the afternoon is because of, this is work. Fathers should be the ones doing the hard work of preparing for work for worship on, on Saturday night. Fathers should be the ones leading in family worship and devotions, and fathers should be the one able to answer difficult theological questions that the kids will inevitably ask, all while putting in a full work week. <laughs> but Paul, Savannah, and Timothy here, they didn't simply set an example of working hard. They did this all while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God, verse 10. Paul's mission, Paul's mission was to be a herald of God's good news. Good news that belonged to God. One thing that means is that he was not, he was not at liberty to innovate. He was not at liberty to modify the message. It is God's good news. It is God's gospel. And that's, that's what makes the, the, the message of the gospel so powerful. Not because of some persuasive preacher. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
He says, when I, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but of God. The preacher's not powerful. The gospel is powerful. Romans chapter 1 Paul says to the saints in Rome, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. And yet, while still believing that, Paul also set an example by laboring, not just with his hands, but in preaching as well. He labored among them. Preaching is, um, it's actually unlike any other kind of work that I've ever done. All of the elders here can tell you that. Um, one of our lifelong goals as elders is that we should entrust the gospel message to faithful men of following generations who will also be able to faith, uh, faithfully train up others also after them. That's one of our goals that we would be able to train up faithful men coming behind us who will be able to train up faithful men coming behind them. That doesn't simply mean more elders. That's not what I'm saying, although it's certainly part of it. It means that one of our goals is that we would train up spiritual fathers in this church, men. I'm so grateful for the men in this church. God has brought us godly men. And when we talk about spiritual fathers, I'm not talking about specifically if you have children or if your children are of a certain age, between this age and this age. And so I would say this, men, whether you have children or not, do the hard work of becoming a spiritual father. And start there in verse 10. Start with your character and conduct. Look at this again, verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. This is their character and their conduct. Not, not only did Paul labor among them through physical toil and preaching, but he also set a clear example of personal holiness for them to follow. Now, there's actually a little bit of an, uh, an awkward structure for this sentence. He calls them, you believers. And then he emphasizes his conduct toward them. I want to be careful not to preach what isn't here. Um, but we know from other places that Paul could be upset with those who heard his preaching and didn't believe, who rejected his message, the message of the gospel, and therefore rejected Christ. In fact, he was distressed with his fellow Jews who rejected Christ. He was willing, if it were possible, he tells the Romans, to give up his own salvation for them to believe. And it was at Thessalonica that some of his, uh, some of his countrymen, his unbelieving Jews, actually chased him out of town, pursued him all the way to Berea. But see that he's emphasizing his conduct, he says, toward you believers as opposed to the people who are slandering him, who are trying to discredit him. 
These believers, they had been witnesses and therefore knew the truth of Paul's life and character. They knew what kind of man he was, no matter what the liars were saying about him. Robert Murray Machane was a Scottish preacher, 19th century. Um, He died early. I think he was 27 or something. He said this, the simple statement. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. My people's greatest need, the pastor of this church says, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. This is profoundly true. And it is why church elders, church deacons have specific character qualifications that they must meet in order to hold the office. First Timothy and Titus tell us. But in reality, this is also true of all spiritual fathers. Man, your, your kids' greatest needs is your personal holiness. Your children's greatest need is your personal holiness. In fact, your nieces and nephews, the kids of this church, their greatest need under Christ. Their greatest need is Christ. All of our greatest need is Christ. I acknowledge that. Their greatest need in watching the people around us is your personal holiness. Anyone who desires to be a a spiritual example and promote the well-being of other believers must live in a way that displays holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness. Holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness. What What does that look like? Well, one way of looking at this is to say that these three, holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness, they're, they're synonyms, or they reflect at least, at least similar and related aspects of our relationship with God. Christ has taken our blame, our guilt for sin upon himself. He has removed it, and therefore we are blameless. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says it like this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because of Christ, he he has presented us as holy and blameless. No condemnation. That's part of what is called imputation. He removes our guilt and blame and he gives us his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. It it actually gets credited to your account. And so you've been made holy. You have been set apart as God's own people with whom he will dwell forever. Those truths are profoundly real. But it's even more than that. Because as a result of this... (coughs) gospel truth we're also affected in our conduct toward one another Paul says you've seen this God sees this you're our witness and God is our witness and what he is saying in all of this is that his character as a Christian as an apostle as their spiritual father is not and cannot be separated from his conduct his character and his conduct go hand in hand This is how we all ought to live, in holiness toward God, righteous in Christ, and blameless toward one another. 
Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, actually summarizes this, summarizes really all of the Christian life like this, and I'm going to have to finish with this today. A little more in this section we'll pick up next week, but Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so now, now we wait for our blessed hope. That's what we're doing. We are waiting for our (coughs) blessed hope. We have work to do. The Christian life is work. We need to be the spiritual fathers that we're called to be and mothers. And as we wait for our blessed hope, we are called to eat and drink and proclaim his death until the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so for, for now, <coughs> we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're about to come to the table, as it were. This is a spiritual meal for the household of God. And Scripture commands us to examine ourselves before coming to the table and eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. And so there may be some things that you need to repent of. If you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, please do not eat and drink. Just let it go by. But if you have trusted in Christ, (laughs) there's a great benefit in receiving this meal with real repentance and living faith. It will be a source of spiritual nourishment and further growth in Jesus Christ. If you have not trusted in him, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Be baptized. Come into his name in the visible church. Live a life of repentance. But remember that the table is not for perfect people. It's not for those spiritual fathers and mothers who have got it all together. It's for those who have sinned and been redeemed. It's for repentant sinners who trust in Christ alone for his salvation and love the household of God. And so we could say this, all you weak, all you who are needy, all of you who hope alone in Christ, come to the table in faith and be blessed by our merciful and gracious Father. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all those who find refuge in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. Father, we rejoice that you have <coughs> that you have redeemed for yourself a people for your own possession, that you have saved us. I thank you that you have brought us together and given us spiritual fathers to look to. I am so grateful for the men in our church, for the women in our church who parent well, whether they're their own children or just other members in the church. Father, I'm thankful for those who are guide and help and teach and learn and display godliness and holiness. Help us all to grow in these things. Father, we are thankful. We come to the table thankful, Lord, and rejoicing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.